You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text this morning is Colossians 1, 9 to 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is God's word. verses of chapter 1, going to take what is a smaller letter, a little slower than what you are probably familiar with with King's Cross, as we tend to like cover like books like Exodus, you know, three, four chapters at a time. Uh, we're going to go in chunks, and uh, honestly, in some ways, it almost feels too fast, because there's so much for us to dive into here that Paul is attempting to unpack for this church in Colossae and encourage them with. So before we dive in, I would invite you to pray with me that the Spirit would teach us and guide us and lead us through our study. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be here before you, opening up your word and hearing from your truth. God, this morning I pray that you would exalt your Son, Lord, that we as kingdom citizens would see fully what you have in mind for us to live in this world as we represent your name before a world dying without you. God, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill us, teach us, guide us, and shape us, and make us look more like Jesus. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, as we opened up in the first eight verses, we did what is really a brief... uh, kind of a brief introduction to the entire letter. Um, the context of what Paul is writing to, we mentioned that Paul is writing to a smaller church, one that he's not actually ever been to, writing from um, a prison location. And today, not unlike then, today we have a similar situation that they do of something of a religious marketplace of ideas. Uh, really, honestly, the religious landscape of our world is filled with varieties of practices among all different types of different faiths. Um, You can find any measure of those done at any corner of your neighborhood and definitely all around the world. There's more expressions and practices of religion and spirituality than Baskin-Robbins has flavors. That's not even close, right? I don't know, I couldn't think of another illustration. My uh, mother-in-law always says more than uh, Carter's got liver pills, but I don't think that lands either. Um, So, in some respects, you have to imagine that throughout history, this is always been the case, and the evidence of Colossae speaks to that as well. Even such a small setting, he's speaking to so many different, what they refer to ultimately in summation as the Colossian heresy. 
We didn't really give it that, that articulation last week, but when he was referring in chapter 2 and into 3 about what seems to be practices of Jewish rites, asceticism, meaning restricting your body, doing things uh, to, to harm yourself, maybe at times even to try to seek holiness and separation, and then other various pagan practices like worshiping angels and the like, that all of those got, get lumped into what scholars call the Colossian heresy. And, and one of the, and the occasion, really, for why Paul writes the letter, he's, he's writing to them to, to speak against this temptation to what is known as syncretism, right? to come together, to, to bring other practices and ideas together, and to really dilute and to um, stain the purity of the gospel. Now, some critics will look at this, scholarly critics will look at this and try attempt to date this letter much later than we would expect and actually say that Paul didn't write it uh, because they'll look at something that we now know as Gnosticism. I'm sure you guys are all deep into this, right? You know all this fun stuff. They never called themselves this, but it comes from a Greek word about knowledge, gnosis, okay, to know something. And they, in very, very general terms, the religious collection of, of groups that came up with ideas had this deep-seated, higher-level spirituality they thought they needed to seek that separated them away from this physical, dirty, disdained, filthy earth. Okay? Everything physical was bad. Spiritual, good. Enlightenment, separation. Matter of fact, the very creation in their, in their, in their line of thought, the very creation of earth was done by evil gods. Okay? So as, we, as they look at this text, they said, it sounds a lot like Paul is speaking against these, these Gnostics, which they didn't come till like at least 100 AD, right? We think this is 50, 60 AD. They said, so Paul didn't write it as early as you guys think he did. He clearly wrote it back then, uh, later on. Now, this is something really, really important because critics can look at this and say, he has a high view of Christ, sure, but that didn't come till later. We have no evidence that they really thought he was God. They came up with that along the way. Now, the reason we can look at this and say they are probably wrong is because what they didn't have in the 19th century when they began to critique this way was that within the next several years, we uncovered a cave full of a lot of old, old books of the Bible and other Jewish religious mysticism, and they were talking about some of the exact same things. And we're talking hundreds of years before Paul. So hyper-spirituality, otherworldliness, connecting with angels and spirits and thinking there's a higher level of thought to achieve isn't new. It wasn't new then, and it's not new now. The idea of separating ourselves from everything physical as being bad and evil is not new. It wasn't new for Paul. It wasn't new for the Gnostics. It's not new now. And what we see in Paul is that when he first writes to them, he says in verse 3, if we want to go to this first slide, uh, first slide, we see that he says in verse 3, we always thank God the Father for our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. This is the first original faith, lo love, and hope, you know, placard that, you know, some of you, you got moms that have them all over their house, right? I'm sorry. No, but this is literally what he saw in the Colossian church that so encouraged him. 
They had faith in Christ. They demonstrated the fruit and love of the rest of the saints, the holy ones. And they, and they, they had a hope that was clearly pointed toward heaven. And he saw that in them, but he also knew they were faced with the temptation to get distracted by all the other vain philosophies, he refers to them. All the other ideas. But what he knew was the hope they had, the faith they had in Christ, the love they demonstrated come because they knew the reality of what God was actually starting to accomplish in the gospel. It was so much bigger than all of these types of random religiosity things that people could chase. These things that are attempts at holiness and looking to try to make yourself, really improve yourself, but not draw you closer. In verse 13, I'm going to fast forward to the end of this passage. I think Paul actually creates a summary of the big idea of what Paul's doing. What is God, or what God is doing? He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Because in him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This, this passage in particular is a prelude to the greatest Christological hymn we find in scripture. And Paul is beginning to pronounce the great thing that God is trying to accomplish in this world. And brothers and sisters, if you were in Christ, he is attempting to accomplish in and through you. It's not some vain way of just making you a better person. But he is, the word here, rescuing you from the domain of darkness and transferring you into the kingdom of the son he loves. We live as citizens of his kingdom. And it changes us radically. It transforms us. It's not that God wants to separate you from this physical world. He made it in the beginning good. But he is restoring it, redeeming it, resurrecting it. And making all things new. So that then united in new heaven, new earth, in that flesh made new, in the spirit that he has created in us, we are now once again whole and all because of Christ. And the beauty of that is that Paul recognizes in this text, you'll see throughout it, things that sound like they haven't quite happened yet. Do you feel like you're out of the domain of darkness? No, we don't. We are so tempted to feel surrounded by darkness, enveloped in darkness. Read the psalmist, you're not alone. There are so many psalms where they feel like they're falling into the pit. But Christ hasn't left you there alone. See, what Paul wants to do in this passage here is begin to articulate a prayer that he has for the Colossians. To encourage them while they're sitting here feeling so excited, like a camp high, right? Like they got the gospel. Anybody been to like a youth camp or church and everyone's gung-ho and they come back and I don't know, mine had youth Sunday and you share about all the exciting things that happen. They call it like a camp high. You get back and all of a sudden you're back in the real world, right? And then the guys, at the, the, the other students at school start to rub you the wrong way and you don't feel so Christ-like. Teachers give you the test assignment you didn't prepare for and you forget all about it. Paul is looking at the Colossians, where they are, and he's encouraged by that. And he wants to pray that they continue to be filled with the knowledge of God. To pray that they would continue to seek after him and walk after him. That they would come to the full realization and knowledge of what God is trying to do in and through them. And they would see it to the fullness. 
That's what Paul's pointing towards. And throughout this passage we are looking at here today, there are allusions to the Old Testament story when God is making a kingdom out of a group of people in the Exodus. It's actually allusions to when he is rescuing Israel out of Egypt, establishing them as a nation, and placing his dwelling place, his tabernacle, with them. Now Paul, in this letter, is trying to point the Colossians to this new kingdom, this new nation, this new people that God is rescuing out of darkness and establishing in Christ. The kingdom of the son he loves. So let's look at this passage because Paul's desire is that we would understand that God is empowering us to live as full and fruitful citizens of this kingdom. And that's my heart's desire for us today. And he makes four specific petitions in his prayer that we're going to look at one after the other, starting with filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's his first petition, verse nine. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. Now, pause for a second. So you're clear and you don't feel overly guilty. It doesn't mean Paul is praying 24-7 in case you weren't sure. It's a, it's a continual regular thing is what he's saying. Hey, I, man, I am praying for you. And every time I get a chance, when I'm praying, when I'm praying for you, like it's regular, it's on every occasion. This is the way we should pray for one another. Lift one another up. But it doesn't mean that you close your eyes while you're driving you're just continually articulating a prayer. God expects you to work and live and do your thing day to day. But in this case, Paul is not stopping praying for them. He's continuing to pray. What is he doing? First, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, this is the point where the mystic teachers would point towards a spiritual mystery understanding, one that elevates your mind, that look at this saying, we have knowledge, gnosis, that is outside the normal, and that is separating us from this mundane, fleshly world. But N.T. Wright, in his Tyndale commentary on Colossians, points out that what Paul is speaking to here is not an esoteric knowledge. Okay? It's not confined to private religious experience or exclusive sex. It is knowledge of God's will, which is open to all God's people something available to all God's people. Now, when we say will, I would, I would want to point out to you that there's a couple different versions or flavors of will that Paul is often talking to. The first one is actually a decretive will. If you're familiar with the word decretive, it's God's unalterable, redemptive, historical plan. The will he has for the big picture of what he's trying to do in Christ. Huh? Right? Paul's reference in verse 13 that we just looked at and it's also highlighted in Christ's authority and his victory over the powers of this world all throughout Colossians. Okay? So that God's doing something. His will is to accomplish in Christ this redemption of his people. But there's also another type of will that we often see, and it's his, what we call the perceptive, preceptive will, a precept. Right? His commands. His commands for his people to obey. It's suggested that this is actually referencing some preceptive wills because in the next part of this of his prayer, he expresses a desire for them to live their, their lives in a certain way, right? So there's some preceptive will here. And we see it also like in 1 Thessalonians, when he writes this letter to the Thessalonian church, he says, for this is God's will, your sanctification. 
that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Paul, uh, Peter also later tells us that God says that we should be holy as he is holy. So there's, there's, a lo- there's layers here in which God's will is holistic. God's will is to see redemption of all people and to also transform the way you live. And knowledge of God's will and redemption and for your life is, is the very thing of infinite value for you today. Just as this for Colossians. Paul's prayer is that they would know what he is trying to do. That they would have knowledge that here, even he puts in, in context, is strengthened in connection with wisdom and spiritual understanding, not just to know things. And who in here knows a lot of things, but you don't always know what to do with it? <laughs> Paul is saying, I want you to know the God's will and, and have wisdom to live in it. We have a whole book in the Old Testament of Proverbs that are wisdom literature, intelligent, smart ways to live in light of God's truth. And then on top of that, he points to a spiritual understanding of those truths, that it goes beyond just a surface level knowledge. It goes beyond just knowing this is a good way to act, but a spiritual understanding of how God would have you live. And this actually contrasts with later passages when he's talking about the Colossian heresy. Because if you look in verse 18 of chapter 2, he tells them about these people who are trying to live an ascetic life. And he says, Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices in the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by not full knowledge, empty notions, and not a spiritual understanding, but of their unspiritual minds. So he's he's drawing, even at the beginning, the contrast that he's going to talk about later. And in verse 23 of that same chapter, he says, although, again talking about asceticism, Although these have a reputation for wisdom, right? He wants you to have wisdom. Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. They have no value. Because ultimately, they see flesh and the body as, as, as evil in itself. It's inevitable that you would be tempted It's inevitable that you'd give it in. So we just must shut it off. We must hold ourselves completely back from it. It's either give up, right? It's a a defeated mentality that gives up and says, well, this is just the way I'm going to live. Can't help it. This is my body. It wants what it wants. Heart wants what the heart wants. The flesh wants what the flesh wants. We just got to live with it. Or... I have to restrict myself and abuse myself and keep myself so separated because otherwise I would always give in. And the truth is that might sound radical as far as religiosity and you in here today might say, I don't see us getting, I'm not there. That's not what I'm thinking about this. But the truth of what God's trying to do is that he made the physical world, he made your physical body and he's seeking to restore what's broken. And he's seeking to restore what's broken in heaven, the spiritual, the unseen, as we said in the, uh, in the Nicene Creed, and on earth, the seen realm. Like God's salvific and redemptive work is total. It's not incomplete. It's not partial. And the thing that I believe is dangerous for us 
is that if we think that that's some future resurrection that God is not seeking to redeem and restore today, we can be defeated and, act and just imagine that we are a victim of our own fleshly desire. That there's no hope for us to walk away from that. And we hear things like this all the time. Guys gonna be guys, that's just how they're gonna be. Humans are humans. Fleshly attraction. My wife herself, she's heard many other people who talked to him that guys are just gonna look at porn. That's just what's gonna happen. Guys are gonna fall into that temptation. And by the way, that's not just a guy thing, even though I'm saying it all the time. That's a girl's temptation as well. That the physical desires and attraction of our body are outside of our control. But the truth is God resurrected your broken body or God seeks to resurrect your broken body and restore your physical creation to once again say it's all good. And if we believe that the lust of the flesh and our physical desires are inevitable and unavoidable, then we've already claimed defeat. But if we look in Galatians and we look at the total fruit of the Spirit, one of them is self-control. And if the Spirit is in you, if the Spirit's in me, if the Spirit is in us, you're no longer a slave to the sin and desires of the flesh. Indulgence is not required. Like he says, that asceticism does nothing to curb self-indulgence. But I will tell you, as Paul would say, the Spirit of God can. He can restore what's broken. By God's power, he redeems you today. And the next petition of Paul, the next petition that he makes is actually contingent on the first. Because you have full knowledge and understanding of God's total redemptive work in humanity. And what he's seeking to restore in you and me, it begins to change the way you live. Knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding changes the way you walk. Look at verse 10. I want you to have all knowledge, 10, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Now, I want us to really early on acknowledge that this is not to suggest that God's love for you is dependent on how well you live. Okay? When it says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, he's not sitting back on the throne and saying, eh, he's not worthy. You can't come before me. Because here, if you are in Christ, friends, Hebrews tells us that you can come boldly to the throne. It says nothing of your life because your righteousness is his. But there is a way in which you live that reflects on the name we bear. I, we understand that from the perspective of the flesh. In your family, some of you, have you ever felt like your parents thought you, they were ashamed of something you chose to do in your life as a teenager growing up and maybe said that you probably soiled the family name? It's not as common maybe as a whole culture in the West, but I would venture to say with my own kids as they bear my name, they represent my family, we establish an expectation of what it looks like to live in this world. If they go into class, I'm proud to say they were more well-behaved than many other kids in the class. <laughs> proud dad. But if they were to choose at some point and think, you know, look, dad's trying to keep something from me. Clearly there's a better way to live that's more fun and more exciting. And they became the ones that, you know, ended up in prison someday 
You know, maybe they, maybe they just went on the wrong side of the law. They, they went to the raves. Do people rave anymore? I don't know. Some wild party, what we call them nowadays. Uh, and they begin to believe that, yeah, that's my dad. Yeah, that's my name. But I got a better way to live, and I'm going that route. Nobody's ever done that here before, right? Perfect angels, all of us, including myself. And they chose to do that. Here's the deal, friends. It's true that it, there's a sense in which they're not living up to the name in which we would establish as our family and we would desire for them. And there is, it would be wrong for me to say I would be pleased with the life they were leading, right? If I had to go in to break them out of prison every other, you know, out of jail every other weekend, I'm not really pleased about that. And that's such a small thing in comparison to the offense we have before God. Because if you're a disciple of Christ and you're citizens of the kingdom of, of the Son, you bear God's name. And what Paul is saying is if you understand the kingdom that you live in, if you have knowledge of what God's will is for you and in your life, you live differently and you walk more like a kingdom citizen. Worthy of the name. Pleasing to God. And guess what happens in your life? You bear fruit. Your life is bearing fruit in every good work. And the irony is, as you bear good fruit, you grow in more knowledge of God. It's not, it's not really a circular reasoning, but more like a staircase that's ascending. As you grow in your knowledge of God, you begin to bear more fruit and you begin to learn more about him. Because obedience leads to more knowledge. And as you are more obedient, you're trusting him in more. We had this conversation in my own home where, where I feel like I might be wrestling against the spirits and the evil and principality who's tempting me to live one way or the other. When I choose to maybe choose anger or choose frustration or choose anxiety or don't... Uh, don't believe I know what might come the next day, then I'm choosing to not trust in the Father who's good. Like I'm choosing not to trust in Him in the kingdom that we live in. Knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding changes the way that you live. And that's Paul's prayer, that they would walk worthy of the Lord. His third petition is that they would be strengthened with all power. Strengthened with all power. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience joyfully. Now, that word joyfully at the end of the verse is debated as to whether that should attach because they don't have like commas and you know, punctuation the way that we do in our English language. Whether it that they're being enduring and being patient joyfully or they're being joyfully thankful. Either way, they're being joyful. And the interesting thing is that Paul, as we talk about this contingency, says that as you learn more, as you know more God's will with spiritual understanding, you will walk more worthy of the Lord. You will walk as one who bears Christ's name. And in that, God will strengthen you with his power. Read that. God strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That's God's glorious might. All through Colossians, the fullness of God dwells in Christ and his fullness dwells in you. God's glorious might that he's talking about here is the same one that he puts on display in Exodus. That glorious might in which he takes and rescues 
the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and puts to shame all the gods of the Egyptians. Okay? That glorious might has also, if you're in Christ, rescued you out of the domain of darkness. And that glorious might fills you and strengthens you with all power. Like, for, friends, when we look at this and begin to think that living as someone worthy of the Lord is too much to bear, remember it's not in your own power and strength that you're able to do it. It's in his. And, and, and he says that in strengthening you, he gives you the ability to have endurance and patience with joy. I, I, I doubt in a room full of people here that any of you have any reason you feel need to have endurance or patience with anything. Your life is streamlined, right? Well, I would say as you continue to walk after the Lord, the challenges can pile up. The enemy will tempt you to step aside, to trust God less day after day. And what I appreciate is that in his commentary, N.T. Wright highlights how endurance and patience here are similar, but with slight distinction. Endurance, and I love this, is what faith, love, and hope bring to an apparently impossible situation. Patience is what faith, love, and hope shows to apparently impossible person. So we can endure every circumstance, impossible situation, and we can have patience with every person, with every bit of humanity, with every bit of life that we see. And in this passage that Paul's praying, the power of God's glorious might ultimately, who is Christ, in you is the strength that you have for the day. Like, when I say things like, you don't have to be a slave to sin, it's not because I think you're good enough, you're strong enough, and doggone it, you're going to make it. It's because I don't limit the power of Christ in you to change you today. Because if Paul says he has yanked you out of the domain of darkness, you don't have to live like a citizen there. You can live in freedom. You can live bearing the name of Christ worthy of his name. Because it's the strength of God and his power which fills you to do it. Finally, his final prayer is this. That as you live this life, as you are filling with knowledge of God's will, as you are walking worthy of the gospel, and as God strengthens you for that, then joyfully you're giving thanks to the Father. Colossians chapter 1 verse 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in light, um, that is, I'm going to pause there a second. So, uh, saints, fantastic translation. Don't get hung up on the Catholic stuff. I'll say fantastic. There's probably some clarity we could bring to the table. What's interesting about this is that so often in the New Testament, we're referred to as saints. That good translation for that too also is holy ones. Okay? And, and, and here's what's wild about that. If you ever feel like unholy, and like unworthy of being before the throne room, just 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 peruse through like First and Second Corinthians, 
and just see the way the things, decisions that Paul's trying to like, whoa, what are y'all doing? Like, like the, the correction he's bringing. And remember, he starts that entire letter by calling them holy ones. Okay. Because our holiness is not in ourself. Our holiness is in Christ. And so when he says here, you've been taken to have a share with the saints inheritance and light. And we talk about the Exodus where he has taken his people out of Exodus, out of, I'm sorry, Egypt to make them his people. They're set apart as holy nation. They're set apart as a holy nation, God's people, to, to dwell with God. And when you go even farther into other texts, holy one shows up in the Old Testament referring to spiritual beings, ones that reside directly in the presence of God, those who he works in and through to really govern the world. God's just really cool. He's really cool how he likes to work through people and his creation. So even, you know, you think about that. You know, you have angels come. The, technically, the term means messenger. Like, God could show up and be like, hey, let me just talk to you. You know, he uses an angel. Why? Does he need to? No, he works through him. He does the same thing. Just open up. He does the same thing here. And in the physical, he works through you and I. Could, could he just accomplish his will on this earth? His will is to work through you and I. And, and the great thing is that Paul is pointing out that he has enabled you to live as that kind of holy one and share in that inheritance. Like in the Old Testament, do you know who God's inheritance is? Just peruse through Deuteronomy 32 sometime in your free time. You know, just make a note. Jacob is his portion. Israel is his inheritance. That's his people. And here Paul says, Colossians, you are also sharing in that inheritance, in the light. You're as holy ones. Give thanks to that father who has enabled you who were in darkness to be a part of his holy nation, his people, to be in his family. What did he do? We read this earlier, verse 13. He has rescued from the domain of darkness, us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, the challenge we have when we look back in the Old Testament, and even today when we talk to people, I feel like there's a little bit of spurring at the idea that you think I'm sinful and I need some forgiveness for something. And while there is, there, it's true, I think the greater thing we have to realize here is that the redemption and forgiveness of sins isn't just some taking care of some menial sin that you maybe did this week. It is purifying you and preparing you and tearing open the veil for you to be able to live and reside in the presence of God. That's the redemption and forgiveness you experience. That's the Father that we think, that we're grateful to, who has looked on us, he has no need for. Like you and I, friends, as, as, as great as I think I might be, I'm not like, I'm not the A player God needs in the kingdom to just, just seal the deal. Like, I'm not, I'm the hero of my own story. <laughs> Man, but I'm just, I'm just an NPC. <laughs> I, I, I'm just an extra. One that 
that God doesn't need, but is extended in measurable grace and love to. And, and like there is such beauty and wonder in a God who is so separated from you and I, where we sit here today, yet cares and loves for you individually. And that even this group of people gathered in this room today, and when we gather in our homes during the week, and when we share a meal, and we speak over the grace and kindness of our God and the way he has shown himself day after day, all of that is such a gift that none of us have ever earned or, or deserved. And yet, in the kingdom of the Son he loves, God has offered us redemption and forgiveness of sins. He has offered us full restoration of our relationship and knowledge of him. And friends, if you look over this prayer, my encouragement to you would be to pray this prayer day in and day out for you, for me, and for this church body, and for all of Christendom. Because wisdom and knowledge of the God's will in this life is desperately needed. Because every measure and flavor of some religious nuance is tempting us away from the centrality of Christ and the work that God's doing in the gospel. Every temptation we have, like the Colossians is, to find some other new thing to be, I don't know, to be holier, to be more set apart. But God is already accomplishing the work in Christ. And we can trust him. James tells us that for all those who feel they lack wisdom, can pray to God who gives so liberally. Like, 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 have you prayed for wisdom, for knowledge of God's will? If you have, don't stop. There's this really neat story in Daniel where like he prays for like a long time and then Michael like shows up and he's like, sorry, I got hung up because I was dealing with some other angel issue and, but I'm here now. And it was like somewhere in the midst of this story, like Daniel's perseverance was affecting the spiritual reality. And like I think Paul's communication here is trying to elevate our minds to think it's not about just the world we see, but all of creation that God is redeeming and that we pray with perseverance because we trust that he is good and he will work all things for his glory. So pray for wisdom. Pray that he would open your eyes to understand his will. Pray for discernment and then walk worthy of the Lord. Like just, just be obedient. Like, like when it's hard, like I'm, 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 I'm standing up here and I was a guy who's saying, do it because I do it. Like I want to be like Paul and say, follow me as I follow Christ, but I don't know if I feel like I'm there yet. Because we have boldness <laughs> We can have confidence that as we walk, it's not going to change God's love for us when we fail. But when we do walk in obedience, I can promise you that the fruit you bear and the knowledge you gain about who God is, is worth it. It's worth it. 
because ultimately as you do, God will strengthen you on your walk. He will strengthen you on your way. He will give you endurance. He will give you patience. And, and, and even though it doesn't always feel like it, you'll have joy because you know the one who controls all things. And then like Paul says in the end of this passage, you can truly enjoy, give thanks to the Father because you know the one who has given all good gifts. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have given us the opportunity before you to uh, suspend this time in your word. And God, we're thankful that in Paul you have spoken such wisdom and I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be built up in the knowledge of your will with all wisdom and with all spiritual understanding so we would see with clarity the work that you are doing and accomplishing around us and we would understand what is your good and perfect will in our life day after day. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Make us look more like Christ as we live as kingdom, as citizens of the kingdom. And we ask all this in Christ's name.